You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today's episode is the seventh in our series on Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery. Now, last time I said this would be our final episode, but I was wrong. The script just got really long and big, and it made sense to break all the information up into two episodes. So what we've got today is the second-to-last episode, which will take the Corps from the eastern slopes of the Rockies back to St. Louis in the fall of 1806. The next and final episode will provide a big wrap-up to our epic story. So, with that in mind, let us get going. Last time, the Corps of Discovery had headed home from the Pacific coast, going up the Columbia River and crossing the Rocky Mountains. It had been a long and dangerous trek, but the Corps had done it, mainly because of the assistance from the Nez Perce guides who had led them over the Bitterroot Mountains. Thus, in early July 1806, the Corps was situated at Traveler's Rest, which is at present-day Lolo, Montana. They were preparing to cross the Continental Divide and head out of the Rockies and into the Great Plains. As we discussed last time, a shortcut to the Great Falls of the Missouri was revealed to Captains Lewis and Clark by the Nez Perce. From Traveler's Rest, one only had to follow the Bitterroot River a short way, then march east along Clark Ford River, and then follow a well-traveled trail to the falls. This would save weeks of travel compared to the route the expedition had taken the previous year. However, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark had other ideas. Instead of taking the easiest way home, they elected to divide up the party. The reason was that the captains wanted to a. explore the Yellowstone River from the Three Forks area to where it merges with the Missouri River, and b. to find out exactly where Maria's River went. The latter was important as it represented the northernmost reach of the Mississippi River and its tributaries. The Americans hoped that Maria's River went into Canada and would thus give the United States a claim to those lands. Dividing up the party was, honestly, a very risky decision. The lands the Corps were heading into were full of potential hostile natives, including the Blackfeet, Crow, and Etsina tribes. Still, divide up is what the expedition decided to do. Here was the plan. Lewis would take a contingent of men and horses and follow the Nez Perce route east to the falls of the Missouri. He would leave three men there to dig up the Corps' cache of supplies and prepare for the portage past the falls. Lewis would then go to Maria's River to see how far north it went. Captain Clark would take the rest of the party and head almost directly south, taking the route that they had followed on their western journey the year before. However, the plan was to take a shortcut through Gibbons Pass. While this would save them time, it would mean bypassing the Shoshone villages that the Corps had visited the year before. 
At Three Forks, Clark would then take a detachment of men and head east and connect with the Yellowstone River and follow it to the Missouri. Meanwhile, Sergeant John Ordway and the rest of the men would continue in canoes to the Great Falls, and with the help of the men left by Captain Lewis, portage all the supplies past the falls. This force would then continue to the mouth of Maria's River and wait for Captain Lewis to return from his reconnaissance. Once all the men were together, they would head east and meet up with Captain Clark at the mouth of the Yellowstone River. As I said, it was a risky decision. It would divide up the men, sometimes in groups as small as three, and thus make them vulnerable to hostile natives, wild animals, and the elements. For this episode, we will break things into two parts. First, we will travel with Captain Clark and his party to Three Forks. We will then stay with Clark as he cuts overland to the Yellowstone River and follows it east. Second, we will ride along with Captain Lewis as he heads to the Great Falls and then Maria's River. The grand plan was for everyone to rendezvous at the mouth of the Yellowstone around August 5th. So, with all that said, let us get started. On July 3rd, 1806, Captain Clark departed with 23 members of the expedition, including York, Toussaint Charbonneau, and Sacagawea, and their son, Jean-Baptiste, or Pompey as he was called. Clark's command headed straight south, following the trail they had taken the previous year. The party went about 100 miles, where, using information provided by Sacagawea, they deviated from their path, and instead went east through what is now called Gibbons Pass, crossing the Continental Divide as they did. The pass allowed Clark and his command to save time, but as noted, it also resulted in the party bypassing the Shoshone, who lived near the Salmon River. Two days later, the company arrived at Fortunate Camp on the Beaverhead River. This was the site the Corps had camped at in August of 1805. At that time, the Corps had cached some supplies, including canoes, but most importantly, tobacco. The Americans had not had tobacco for months, and they were beyond thrilled to get a taste of it again. Clark would write, quote, Most of the party with me being chewers of tobacco became so impatient to be chewing it that they scarcely gave themselves time to take their saddles off their horses before they were off to the deposit, end quote. At this point, a portion of the company took to the canoes, while the others rode on horseback toward Three Forks, following the Beaverhead, and then Jefferson Rivers. The voyage downriver to Three Forks would be a stark contrast to the previous fall, when the waters were low and the canoes constantly struggled against debris and rocks choking the river. Instead, the canoes flew downriver. They would reach Three Forks in just three and a half days, a journey that had taken 21 days coming upriver the year before. On July 13th, as planned, Clark would divide the party again. Ten men, led by Sergeant John Ordway, would take the canoes and head down the Missouri and rendezvous with the men left by Captain Lewis. These men would then portage all the Corps' supplies past the falls. All of that would go well, and it was pretty uneventful. And that gets us back to Captain Clark. With 50 horses, Clark struck out down the Gallatin River. This was one of the three rivers that came together at Three Forks. Clark's party numbered 13, including York, Toussaint Charbonneau, and Sacagawea, and their son. Sacagawea directed the party along a trail, which today is Interstate 90, through the Bridger Mountains. On July 15th, they came across the Yellowstone River, at what is the site of modern-day Livingston, Montana. Clark wanted to make canoes, but couldn't find trees of sufficient size to construct them, so the party continued on horseback. They would travel for five days, covering 100 miles. However, the horses would struggle as they went lame from walking on the stone and gravel. Then, on July 18th, one of the men, Private George Gibson, fell, badly injuring his thigh. He could not walk or ride, and Clark called a halt to the march. He needed trees of sufficient size to build dugout canoes. Luckily, the men found some large cottonwoods, and they built a pair of 28-foot canoes. The spot was called, very cleverly, Canoe Camp, 
At canoe camp, the Corps would run into trouble on July 20th when roughly half of the horses would go missing during the night. It was believed that the Crow Indians had stolen them, but the Americans never actually saw the thieves. Now, the company had their canoes, but they had just lost half of their horses. It was here that Captain Clark decided to send four men, led by Sergeant Nathaniel Pryor, overland with the remaining horses, going directly to the Mandan villages. It was believed that they could reach the Mandan people quicker this way, rather than following the river. I want to stress that this was not a random decision. This was something that had been planned. Lewis had wanted to send an advance party to the Mandan villages as a way to prepare for the Corps' arrival later that summer. To accomplish this, Lewis had written out a long letter to Hugh Henney, an agent of the Northwest Company, which was one of the Canadian-based trading companies who operated out of the area. Lewis had penned the letter back at Traveler's Rest, and the contents were basically a sales pitch to Henney. The letter presented him a vision of the American trade operations that were sure to follow in the expedition's wake, and it offered him a job. It then asked him to speak to the local chiefs and convince them to travel east to Washington, D.C. This was all part of Lewis's Indian diplomacy efforts, a way to wean the locals, especially the Teton Sioux, away from the British sphere of influence. So on July 24th, Sergeant Pryor and the three men departed, intent on the Mandan villages, the diplomatic letter in hand. Now, I am going to stay with Clark, but we will talk about Pryor and the others in short order. Clark had the two canoes they had built lashed together to provide stability, and his command, now numbering just nine, headed down the Yellowstone River. The canoes would prove to be swift vessels. The company would cover over 500 miles in just 10 days. On July 25th, Clark would climb a large sandstone rock located about 25 miles east of modern-day Billings, Montana, and call the site Pompey's Rock, in honor of little Pompey. The rock, even today, features a number of Native American petroglyphs, and William Clark would carve his name on the side of it, an etching that remains to this day. It is the only surviving physical evidence of the Lewis and Clark expedition. The site is now called Pompey's Pillar National Monument. With the canoes moving swiftly down the Yellowstone, Clark and his company would reach the Missouri River on August 3, 1806. However, Clark would find the area lacking in game, and even more important, it was swarming with mosquitoes, making living conditions unbearable. No one could sleep or work because the mosquitoes were so numerous. Thus, Clark would move further downriver and wait for Meriwether Lewis. But before we go back to Lewis, let's revisit Sergeant Pryor and the other three men who had departed on horseback for the Mandan villages back on July 20th. Unfortunately, things did not go well for Sergeant Pryor and his men. On the second day out, they would wake up to find all of their horses gone. The silent Indians had struck again. The Americans attempted to track the thieves, but after ten miles gave up the chase. The horses were gone for good. Now, Pryor and his men were stranded. In reality, the Americans were lucky that they only had their horses stolen. The four men were vulnerable due to their size, and the Indians, likely crows, would have overwhelmed them if they had attacked them. It was one of the dangers of traveling in such a small group. So, without horses, the Americans headed back to the Yellowstone River. They now had to catch up to Captain Clark. And I have to admit, they came up with a pretty clever plan to do so. Sergeant Pryor and his men would kill a bison and build two small skin boats, called bull boats, taking the buffalo hides and stretching them over willow frames. They had learned this from the Mandan Indians. The Americans got into the little boats and essentially floated down the Yellowstone River. While crude, it was effective. Pryor and the others would chase after Captain Clark and eventually catch up to him on August 8th at the camp he had set up on the Missouri to wait for Captain Lewis. And that gets us caught up with William Clark and his contingent. Time to go back and see what happened to Meriwether Lewis and the rest of the Corps of Discovery. 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Meriwether Lewis departed from Traveler's Rest on July 3, 1806, with nine men, 17 horses, and several Nez Perce guides. The plan was to rendezvous with Clark at the Yellowstone, Missouri confluence, about 500 miles away. Let us remember that Lewis was heading into the lands of the Blackfeet, a Native American tribe that was sort of the big scary monster of the Western Plains. They had become a power by allying themselves with the British fur trading companies in the north. Originally, Lewis had envisioned going to the Blackfeet and trying to lure them into the American orbit, but those plans were now mostly gone. Lewis had originally intended to bring representatives from the Nez Perce and Shoshone with him to meet with the Blackfeet. The idea was to show off American power and influence and convince the Blackfeet it was in their interest to get on board with the American plan. But the Nez Perce were not real hip to such an endeavor. They saw it as way too dangerous, and the guides that were with the Americans would leave the company shortly after departing Traveler's Rest. So, with the prospect of going into Blackfeet country on its own, Lewis altered his plans and decided to nix the whole diplomacy part of the trek. Still, the mission to explore Maria's River was an important one, and he wanted to conduct it. He just decided to avoid contact with the native peoples, if possible. After a short march north along the Bitterroot River, the company headed west along the Clark Fork River, which led to the Blackfoot River. There was then a well-worn trail that headed to the Great Falls of the Missouri. As noted, the Nez Perce guides would leave the party shortly after departing Traveler's Rest. They did not want to run into the Blackfeet and warned the Americans to steer clear of them as well. Losing the Nez Perce guides was troublesome, as they had been excellent companions, but the danger for them was just too great. Within days, the expedition would see fresh signs of native activity, including abandoned lodges and tracks. It was a dangerous situation, as Lewis and his contingent numbered only ten men. Not small, but not large. Certainly a potential target to a good-sized band of warriors. The Corps headed east, crossing the Continental Divide on July 7th, at a place that is now called the Lewis and Clark Pass. From there, they followed the Nez Perce Trail down out of the Rockies and onto the plains. They would soon sight buffalo and other herd animals, and food would not be an issue. On July 13th, Lewis and his men would reach the Great Falls of the Missouri. Despite signs of native activity, they had thus far avoided any encounters with the Indians. At the Great Falls, the party would see massive herds of buffalo. Lewis would write, quote, I sincerely believe that here were not less than 10,000 buffalo within a circle of two miles. End quote. The party would kill 11 buffalo and use their skins to create bull boats, just like Sergeant Pryor had, so that they could cross to the east bank of the Missouri. On the same day, there was an ominous sign. Despite not seeing any Indians, seven of the company's horses went missing. Lewis suspected Indians and sent George Drewyer after them. What one man could have done if he had found a band of natives with seven of the Corps horses is a good question, but the point is that Lewis and his men knew that there was a threat around them at all times, a threat that was difficult to detect. After crossing the Missouri, the men went to the site they had occupied during the portage of 1805. Lewis was disappointed to find that all the plant specimens had been ruined by water runover. However, the journals and papers and maps had survived unscathed. On July 15th, George Drewyer returned from his pursuit of the horse thieves. The hunter estimated that it was a good-sized band that had taken the horses, but their size and head start ultimately forced him to turn around. Now it was time for Lewis to make his next decision. 
He had initially wanted to take six men and go and follow Maria's river, but with the loss of the horses, he altered those plans. He would instead take only three men, George Druyer, as well as Privates Joseph and Reuben Field, who were brothers. They also took six horses. The rest of the men would work on portaging all the supplies and goods past the falls. It was another risky decision, only four men venturing into uncharted lands known to be populated by hostile natives. But Lewis was determined to go, and on July 16th, the four men departed. Maria's River was about 50 miles downriver from the falls, at least as the crow flies. But Lewis did not go to the mouth and head up the river. Instead, he went north and cut across the landscape, knowing he would eventually intersect with Maria's River. The small party would reach its destination on July 18th, then follow Maria's River upriver, which takes a northwest tack. Luckily, they did not encounter any native peoples, although there were signs of them everywhere. On July 21st, the company came to a fork in the river. The North Fork is known today as Cutbank Creek. The South Fork is Two Medicine River. Lewis, of course, picked the northerly route, Cutbank Creek, as he wanted to follow the river as far north as possible. However, within a day as the men came within 20 miles of the Continental Divide in what is today Glacier National Park, Lewis would come to the realization that Cutbank Creek was starting to veer southwest. Maria's River was not what he had hoped. Lewis would write, quote, I now fear, Maria's River, will not be as far north as I wished and expected, end quote. The men would rest at the location, a place Lewis would dub, appropriately enough, Camp Disappointment. The men would spend four days at Camp Disappointment, with Lewis struggling to make accurate celestial observations. The captain would have liked to have stayed longer, but there were signs of Indian activity, and he considered the party lucky to have avoided any contact with the natives up to this point. But that was going to change, and very soon. The party departed Camp Disappointment on July 26th. On that same day, they spotted a herd of at least 20 horses along with some Indians. And just as important, the Indians had spotted them. There was no avoiding contact. Lewis ordered a flag to be brought out, a universal let's chat symbol. He then had his men slowly advance toward the Indians, trying not to alarm them. The next moments were tense ones, as the natives appeared to be in an uproar, unsure of what to do. Then, one of the natives, mounted on a horse, charged the Americans. Lewis responded by getting off his own horse. He then held up his hand in a halting signal and waited. This was all a dare on both sides, a bluff to see who would blink, and the Indian rider would ultimately veer away and return to his companions. It had been a risky move, and Lewis would later write about how scared he had been at that moment. Still, it seemed to work. The Indians, eight young men in all, approached the Americans carefully, and after shaking hands, a pipe was broken out and smoking began. Lewis thought the Indians to be at Sinna, but they were actually P.I. Connie, one of the three main groups of the Blackfeet. Lewis asked who was the chief of the group, and three of the men stepped forward. He gave them a medal, flag, and handkerchief, the only gifts he had to hand out. Lewis noted that the natives had two rifles amongst them. George Drewer conversed with the P.I. Connie in sign language, and was told that there were several large bands of Blackfeet in the area. He was even told that there was a white man with them, likely a trader from Canada. Lewis, in turn, put on his diplomatic cap and proceeded to give his standard talk to the Blackfeet. He told them about the Americans, how his nation was stronger and wiser than the British. He requested that messengers be sent to the Blackfeet tribes and invited them to come join in a talk. It was classic Meriwether Lewis, trying to do a sales pitch to eight young Blackfeet warriors out in the middle of the Great Plains. But Lewis added some information that likely caused the Blackfeet a bit of concern. He told them that he was organizing the Shoshone, Nez Perce, and other native tribes into a unified force. 
This was likely done to impress, and perhaps scare, the Blackfeet. Lewis was trying to say, hey, we got all these people coming on board. We're going to be a force in the area. Don't be foolish and miss out on this great opportunity. But in reality, it probably scared the Blackfeet. The Shoshone and Nez Perce were their traditional enemies. Those two tribes united and supplied by American guns, well, that was a threat to their way of life and to the order of power in the region. No matter, the two groups agreed to spend the night together. Lewis ordered a watch to be posted to ensure that nothing happened. And then, at first light, something did happen. Private Joseph Field was on watch at dawn, and he reportedly set his rifle down for a few moments. It's also possible that he dozed off. No matter, at this time, the Blackfeet quietly snatched up Field's rifle, as well as the rifles of Lewis and Drewyer. As the Indians took off with the rifles, Field realized what was happening and called out an alarm. His brother, Rubenfield, woke and chased down one of the thieves while armed with only a knife. He caught up with a man, who we know was named Side Hill Calf, and stabbed the man in the chest. Field would later say that Side Hill Calf, quote, drew but one breath, and the wind of his breath followed the knife, and he fell dead, end quote. As this happened, George Drewyer woke and was able to grab his rifle back from the Blackfeet Indian who had tried to take it. He said, quote, damn you, let go of my gun, end quote. As for Captain Lewis, like the others, he woke and, finding his rifle gone, grabbed his pistol and chased after the Indian who now held his rifle. The Indian would surrender the weapon when Lewis caught up with him and threatened to shoot him with the pistol. With the Americans regaining their weapons, the Blackfeet went after the next most valuable item, horses. But this was not going to happen. The horses were critical to the Americans. To be stuck in the middle of nowhere without a horse would have been a death sentence. Lewis ordered his men to chase down and get back the horses and to shoot the thieves if necessary. Lewis himself ran after two Blackfeet, and when one turned, Lewis saw that he was armed with a British musket. Lewis fired, striking the man in the stomach, but not before the Indian got off a shot of his own. The bullet just missed Lewis. He would later write, quote, I felt the wind of his bullet very distinctly, end quote. The Indian was not as lucky. He was dead. With that, it was pretty much over. Two Blackfeet were dead, and the rest were fleeing the scene. But Meriwether Lewis knew that they were in deep trouble. The area was swarming with Blackfeet parties, and it was only a matter of time before word of the melee reached them, and the Americans would be hunted. Taking four of his own horses and three of the Blackfeet, the Americans departed the scene of the skirmish. However, before leaving, the Americans burned the shields, bows, arrows, and quivers that the Blackfeet had left behind. Also, the flag Lewis had given the Indians was reclaimed. And finally, Lewis took one last symbolic action. He took the medal he had given the Blackfeet the day before and put it around the neck of one of the dead natives. He would write, quote, that they might be informed who was here, end quote. It was a moment of bravado, but in reality, the Americans were in a difficult situation. They were stuck in the middle of Blackfeet country, and they had just started a fight with a much more powerful force. Thus, the party beat a hasty retreat southeast toward the Missouri River. The four men would cover 80 miles that day, not stopping until 2 a.m. That night, they slept only an hour and a half before waking and moving on. Meriwether Lewis and his men reached the Missouri River on July 28th. It wasn't long before they heard gunshots. However, these shots were not from pursuing Blackfeet warriors. It was Sergeant Ordway and the rest of the men coming down the river from the Great Falls. Ordway had taken the canoes from Three Forks to the Great Falls, and combining with the men Lewis had left, they had portaged all the goods over the falls and were now on their way down river. They had anticipated meeting Lewis at the mouth of Maria's River, but they were happy to see their captain, even under the circumstances. Everyone was relieved, but haste was in order. 
At the mouth of Maria's River, the expedition undercovered another cache of supplies. Some skins and furs were ruined, but there was gunpowder, corn, flour, pork, and salt. One of the pirogues was in the cache, now added to the five canoes. The corps did not stay long, and downriver the expedition went, leaving the Blackfoot in their wake. But they knew that the Maria's River expedition had nearly been a disaster. The next step was to reach Captain Clark. The ride down river went quickly as the currents were swift. They could travel as fast as six or seven or eight miles per hour. The hunting was also good, and the men of Corps bagged 29 deer in one stop. On August 7th, Lewis reached the Yellowstone, finding the message Clark had left him on a pole. The expedition pushed onward. On August 11th, the Corps stopped to go hunting. Lewis and Private Cruzette went after some elk. Cruzette was an interesting choice to go hunting, as he had only one good eye, and he was nearsighted. You can sort of see disaster in the making, and that is exactly what happened. In the tall high grass, and Lewis clad in brown buckskin, Cruzette probably mistook the captain as an animal and took a shot. The bullet would enter Lewis on his left side, an inch below the hip joint, and exit out his rear end. No bone had been hit. Lewis yelled out, quote, Damn you, you have shot me! End quote. There was no reply from Cruzette. Okay, Lewis had not been shot in the ass as I noted last time, but it had come out of his butt. Close enough. Anyhow, Lewis staggered back to the canoes. He thought he had been shot by Indians and called the men to arms thinking that they were under attack, but there was no sign of any natives. Then Private Cruzette showed up, denying he had shot the captain. Frankly, no one believed that Cruzette shot the captain on purpose, but his denials were pretty flimsy. Lewis even had the bullet that he had been struck with, a fifty-four caliber from a U.S. Army rifle. Cruzette would still insist he had not shot Lewis, and stuck to his story. No matter, mistake or not by Cruzette, Captain Lewis was injured. His wound was dressed, and he was placed in the pirogue, lying on his stomach. The men proceeded downriver. That afternoon, another note from Clark was found at a campsite on the river. They were close. As for Lewis, he was in great pain, and he developed a fever. The men applied a poultice of Peruvian bark, which helped reduce the fever during the night, as well as other medicine for the pain. The next day, August 12th, the expedition came upon two white men, not members of the Corps. These men's names were Joseph Dixon and Forrest Hancock, American fur trappers. They were planning to go up the Yellowstone River to trap beaver. This was a sign of things to come. Lewis would provide the two men with sketches of the area, as well as information about what to expect. In the end, the two men decided to come back to the Mandan villages with the Corps before heading out west again, undoubtedly hoping to get more information from the Americans and perhaps recruit one of them to go on their journey. That afternoon, Lewis and his contingent of men would reach the camp of William Clark. The Corps of Discovery was back together. Clark was distraught to see his friend injured and tended to the wounds while the two men exchanged notes. Lewis was mostly disappointed to find that his message had not been delivered to Hugh Henney at the Mandan villages. He had been counting on the man to have laid the groundwork for his diplomacy with the Indians. Two days later, on August 14th, the reunited Corps reached the Mandan villages. It was a joyous reunion, as many felt the Corps would never return. There would be celebrations and speeches. However, Captain Lewis did not play a big role in the festivities due to his injury. While thrilled to be back at the Mandan villages, the return would provide a dose of bad news. The peace efforts championed the previous year by Lewis and Clark were in shambles. While everyone said they were interested in peace, they were all now fighting each other. The Arikaras and the Sioux were fighting the Mandan. The Hadatsa were fighting the Shoshone. You get the picture. In reality, the American peace policy was naive. To try and change the world of the Indian nations with a few meetings was just not realistic. And the coming of the Americans was only roiling the pot. 
as it introduced a new power and a level of uncertainty that made each faction apprehensive for their own futures. Still, the Americans went forward with their plans and invited the local leaders to come to Washington, D.C. But with all the uncertainty and fighting going on, they were turned down by everyone except for Shaheki of the Mandan Nation. Shaheki, or Big White as he was called by the Americans, agreed to come to Washington as long as his family came with him, as well as Rene Jessam, the frontiersman who lived with the Mandan, and would serve as an interpreter. Lewis and Clark would agree to these terms, despite the large entourage. They wanted and needed to accomplish this part of their plan. On October 17, 1806, Toussaint Charbonneau, and by extension his wife, Sacagawea, were discharged from the Corps. Charbonneau received $500 for his services, while Sacagawea got nothing. However, Clark would write a letter to Charbonneau, saying, quote, Your woman who accompanied you that long and dangerous and fatiguing route to the Pacific Ocean and back deserved a greater reward for her attention and services on that route than we had in our power to give her, end quote. Charbonneau would be given an invitation by Clark to come to St. Louis, but he would decline the offer. Clark even offered to take Pompey with him and raise him. Again, Charbonneau and Sacagawea declined, but said maybe in the future they would take him up on the offer. We will check back in on Charbonneau and Sacagawea in our next episode when we wrap up the lives of the key members of the expedition. At this time, the Corps would lose another of its members, Private John Coulter, who was discharged from the Corps at his request. Coulter had come to an agreement with Joseph Dixon and Forrest Hancock, the two trappers of the Corps had come across on the Missouri. He was going to lead them back upriver to go beaver trapping. Coulter would have a very interesting life in the West, and I will wrap that up in our next episode as well. With that, the Corps headed south down the Missouri on the last leg of their journey. The next few weeks saw the Corps coming in increasing contact with traders and trappers coming up the Missouri. The men were eager for news about the outside world. They were no doubt thrilled to hear Toppence Jefferson had been re-elected president back in 1804. In late August, the Corps moved into Sioux territory. Luckily, the swift-moving boats of the Americans kept contact with the potentially dangerous Teton Sioux at a minimum, and no hostile encounters would occur. On September 1st, the men would stop to pay their respects at the grave of Sergeant Charles Floyd, climbing Floyd's bluff to do so. It is an extraordinary thing to consider that Floyd was the only man to die during the trek across the continent. On September 6th, a passing trader sold a gallon of whiskey to the expedition. It was the first whiskey the men had had since July 4th, 1805. To receive such a thing must have been an amazing thing for the men, most of whom were regular drinkers. A steady stream of travelers up the Missouri offered more news, plus the opportunity to buy flour, biscuits, whiskey, and whatever else could be had. One party would bring news of Zebulon Pike, who had set out to the west down the Arkansas. If you haven't listened to that podcast, it is a perfect extension to this one. Now, I do want to take a moment and talk about someone the Corps of Discovery did not run into during their trip home, and that was the Spanish. If you recall, in our second episode on the Corps, the Spanish felt that the Americans, by going up the Missouri, were pushing into their territory. Thus, they sent a small force of 50 men to intercept Lewis and Clark and stop them from their mission. The command failed and returned home. Well, the Spanish were not done. In the fall of 1805, they sent 100 men from Santa Fe to the Great Plains. Their mission was to seek an alliance with the Plains Indians and stop and arrest Lewis and Clark on the return from the west. However, in present-day Colorado, they would be attacked by a large group of mounted Indians and forced to return to Santa Fe. Then, in April of 1806, the Spanish sent another force, this one of 300 men, north from Santa Fe, again with the intention of making treaties with the Plains Indians. However, the Spanish command would fall apart when the men deserted in great numbers. The column would return to Santa Fe within six weeks. 
But the Spanish were not done. They still had one more expedition to send out. This one was deployed in June of 1806 and numbered 600 men and 2,000 horses and mules. It was the largest force ever dispatched by the Spanish into the Great Plains, and it was designed to impress upon the Native American Indians the power of the Spanish Empire. The commander of the Spanish force was Lieutenant Fagunda Melgares. Melgares would later escort Zebulon Pike, who had been captured by the Spanish, back to American territory. That aside, Melgares would divide his force at the Arkansas River, leaving half of his men to halt any American expeditions coming up the river. He then proceeded into Nebraska with the rest of his force. He would then attempt to negotiate with the Pawnee. He would have some success, but the Pawnee would object to Melgares' attempt to push into their lands and onto the Missouri. The truth is that Melgares had a large force of men he could not adequately feed, and he was losing horses to thieves every day. Facing a potentially hostile opponent in the Pawnee, and his supplies dwindling, the Spanish lieutenant gave up his pursuit of Lewis and Clark and turned back south, eventually returning to Santa Fe. The interesting thing is that Melgares got within a hundred miles of Lewis and Clark, and if he had gone east and reached the Missouri, he very well may have intercepted them. That would have been a fascinating situation, but we can only imagine the outcome. So, with the Spanish threat gone, let us get the Corps home. On September 12th, the expedition would run into Joseph Gravelines and Pierre Dorian, the latter who had been with the expedition in 1804 as they had traveled through Sioux territory. The men were bringing news to the Arikari people that their chief who had gone to Washington, D.C. the previous year had died. This was not good news for Lewis and Clark, as it only clouded their attempts to forge a peace amongst the tribes in the plains. A few days later, Lewis and Clark came to the mouth of the Kansas River. The captains noted a particular spot that would make a great location for a fort as it commanded the river. That spot is downtown Kansas City, Missouri. By September 18th, the expedition was pretty much out of food and supplies. The captains did not want to stop and hunt, so for the next few days, the corps subsided by getting food from traders coming up the Missouri. Two days later, the expedition reached the village of La Charette, the first white settlement in over two years. The men fired a salute of three rounds to mark the occasion. The people of the village swarmed out to meet the returning expedition. The men of the corps were surprised to find out that most people thought them dead. The next day, September 21st, the scene was repeated at St. Charles. And then, finally, two days later, on September 23rd, the Corps of Discovery reached St. Louis. More than 1,000 people were waiting for them, cheering their extraordinary achievement. And with that, the Corps of Discovery was home. Lewis and Clark had done it. Two years, four months, ten days, 8,000 miles. While it was mostly a journey of exploration, it was also an expedition wrapped in politics, economics, and science. Half a continent had been unveiled, and the rest of the world was very interested in what had been found. And as noted before, this expedition had suffered only one death, an extraordinary achievement considering the circumstances. So, with the return to St. Louis by the Corps of Discovery, we will conclude today's episode. Join us next time as we do a big wrap-up of this story, which is quite fascinating. As always, if you want to see a map of the route of the Corps of Discovery, you can find one on our website, explorerspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time for the final episode of Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery. Thank you. 
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts. 